Uh, so people say they want to leave, but they always come back. How about you? The New York Post cites a survey that uh, says 78% of people between the ages of 18 and 76 are looking for other neighborhoods to move to, to find greener pastures, other cities, other towns. And many people are moving to cities and towns that align better with their particular uh, politics. This is a family from Indiana, the Wooten family. They recently moved from Red, Indiana to Austin, which is a dark blue spot in an otherwise red Texas. And then there's a private Facebook group called uh, Conservatives to Texas with about 8,000 members in that group. One member of that group named Lynn says this, as soon as I drove into Texas, literally as soon as I could get into the state and stop at my first truck stop for gas, it was like, this is wonderful. People aren't wearing masks. Nobody cared. It's kind of like heaven on earth. Well, everybody has their different interpretation of what heaven is, I guess. So how do you feel about the community, the city where you live? Whether it's Springfield, Fairgrove, Stratford, Republic, Willard, Nixa, Ozark, Rogersville. Do you wish that you lived somewhere else? The lady from Indiana who moved to Austin said this about a reason for moving. We were looking for blue cities because we wanted to be with our own people. So what do we do if we are in a city that's just not us? It just doesn't feel like us. doesn't, as a majority, share the values that we might have. That we are in a city, but we just feel like these aren't my people. Well, the people of Judah years ago felt the very same. Before I tell you that story, let's remember this last week we commemorated the 22nd anniversary of 9-11. We remember the planes and the explosion, the smoke, the fire. We still feel the horror, the unbelief, the shock of that day. Well, the people of Judah remembered the events of a time in 586 BCE. They remember the attacks, the explosions, the fire, the smoke, the shock, the disbelief, the horror of that day. It was on that day in 586 BCE that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and his armies rushed through the gate of Jerusalem and the royal line of David and Solomon came to an end. Boy King Jehoiakim was captured along with his family and the royal court. They were taken captive to Babylon along with 10,000 other Jewish people. But maybe worst of all, hundreds if not thousands of other people died in that battle. And the temple of Jerusalem, which was the center of religious and just the life itself of the Jewish people was leveled and burned along with other structures and homes in the city. For Israel, it was a stunning and humiliating defeat. And for those 
who were taken captive to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, life would never be the same. And the psalm in Psalm 137, 1 through 4 reflects how those people felt. It said, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and cried when we remembered Zion, another name for Jerusalem. There on the poplars we hung our harps, they hung their instruments of music on the trees. For there our captors asked for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of joy. And they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And we said, well, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? But the prophet Jeremiah, who prophesied before the fall of Jerusalem and during that exile, showed them how. Jeremiah had warned Judah what was going to happen to them. He warned about the collapse of Jerusalem and the uh, devastation of the area of Judah. Secular historians tell us that Nebuchadnezzar uh, captured Jerusalem because King Jehoiakim had not paid his taxes for three years. Spiritually speaking, it was captured because the people of Judah didn't follow the Lord. Jeremiah prophesied it. He said, a hunter uses tricks to fill his cage with birds, and my people have filled their houses with a lot of goods. They've become rich and powerful. They have grown fat and heavy. There's no limit to the evil things that they do. In the courts, they do not seek justice. They don't protect the rights of children whose fathers have died. They do not stand up for poor people. Shouldn't I punish them for this, announces the Lord. Shouldn't I pay back the nation that does these things? So when the armies of Babylon took over Jerusalem and ransacked it and leveled it, Jeremiah wasn't surprised. Because they weren't taking care of the poor, they weren't following the Lord's wishes, they were attacked. So here they were in a strange land, 10,000 plus Jewish people in Babylon. Let's suppose there's a 20-year-old Jewish exile by the name of Benjamin who's walking the streets of Babylon. On his left, he sees a temple to a god, Ishtar. Across the street from that temple is another temple to a different god, Marduk. Down on the corner, there's another temple to another god. The Babylonians worshipped hundreds of gods. If Benjamin made a friend of a resident there in Babylon went to that friend's house, Benjamin would have seen in the friend's living room an altar to that family's personal god. There were many temples to different gods as there are churches in Springfield. Everywhere you looked, a temple, but to a different god. So here are 10,000 plus Jewish people who had been taught by their forefathers that there was one God, found themselves in a place that believed that there were many gods. They were in a place that was religiously different, culturally different. Maybe some of their values were different. So what were they instructed to do in that? Did God tell them that they were to evangelize the Babylonians, pass out tracts, 
They were to protest or boycott? No. Jeremiah says, people of Israel, through the Lord, I am bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. Their quivers are like an open grave. All of them are mighty warriors. They will devour your harvest and food, devour your sons and daughters. They will devour your flocks and herds, your vines and your fig trees. With the sword, they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. And that happened. Devastating. So what are these people who are captives of Babylon to do? Well, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to you. All the, those that I carried to exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is how I want you to live in this city that doesn't share your religious values. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. And seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. The word translated welfare three times in that English version is this Hebrew word, shalom. When you hear or see the word shalom, what word in English comes to your mind? Exactly right. We translate this very rich, full Hebrew word by one very simple peace. Yeah. It's so much more than that. Cornelius Plantiga Jr. is a president of a Calvinist seminary. But I love his, I'm not a Calvinist, but I do love his definition of uh, shalom. He says it's the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than just peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. It means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, all under the arch of God's love. Shalom, in other words, is the way things are supposed to be. So take a moment and read that and let the words seek in and Talk to me. Talk to each other. What words in that definition of shalom just either jump off the page to you or just really do settle within your heart and resonate with your spirit? Anything? Jump out. Go ahead and shout it out if you want to. Universal flourishing. Living together. Peace and wholeness. All under God's love, not just Springfield. Ah, oh, yeah. The way things are supposed to be. So let's think about it. This applies to Springfield and to Willard and Ozark and Nixon and all the other communities around. It applies to the people who agree with me. But it also applies to the people who don't agree with me. It applies to the people who worship 
like I or who don't worship like I do. It even applies to the people who vote like I do or don't vote like I do. So can I really pray for and hope for and work for people I don't like or people that I don't agree with to experience shalom? That's asking for a lot. But we have to answer that question honestly today. Do we really want whatever person comes to your mind who is on the opposite end of you? Do we really hope for, work for, pray for that person and that group of people to have shalom? I want us to think about that. As we look at the word shalom and how that was practiced in the Hebrew scriptures, and I'm so thankful for the Hebrew prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Hosea and Amos, who all put shalom at the heart of their message, but every one of them said that shalom cannot exist without social justice. Social injustice was a major theme in the writings and the prophecy of Jeremiah. It was a major reason that Judah and Jerusalem were taken captive. For example, Jeremiah writes, This is what the Lord says, do what is fair and right. Save the one who has been robbed from the power of his attacker. And that wasn't just somebody that robs you or attacks you. It's from somebody that may oppress you unfair to you don't mistreat or hurt the foreigners boy we need to hear that today the orphans or the widows which was a class of people that was considered marginalized don't kill innocent people here as we look at our own town how are we as a community and communities around Springfield doing with this social justice thing the poverty rate, the poor in Springfield are 21.75% of our population. Higher than the rate of Missouri at 13, and the national rate is not much different than Missouri's rate. I don't do math very well, so can anybody tell me what 21.75%? That's somewhere between 1 and 4 and 5, but I don't know, 4 point something. That's a lot of people in Springfield who are at or below the national poverty rate. Our poverty level is higher in Springfield than it is in Kansas City and St. Louis. Now, there are a lot of ways to crunch numbers as it relates to poverty. But news headlines across the street are similar to this one. Missouri's poorest city may come as a surprise. Springfield. Amy Blancett, who is the founder and the CEO of the Drew Lewis Foundation, named in honor of her late husband, an organization that helps financially struggling families, and our own Laura Alford is a, on the staff of that good organization. Dr. Blancett says this as she looks at the rate of poverty in Springfield. So the person who is sitting next to you at church or your coworker could be struggling 
but they're just not talking about it or showing it. Yeah, between 20 and 25% of Springfieldians are at that poverty rate. It's a very good chance that people in this community are at that poverty rate. KY3's news website says, based on household income and home value, Springfield is the poorest city in Missouri. So in light of the writings of Jeremiah, how are we as a community doing? One person said, the bank says I can't afford a $950 mortgage, so I pay $1,400 a month in rent. I've been watching, and maybe you have too this week, the uh, auto workers union in negotiations with the three automakers, uh, GM, Ford, and I don't know, I still call them Chrysler. Uh, I don't know who the third one's name is. But uh, I was watching Smirconis yesterday morning. Denise and I were on CNN. He's one of my favorite, one of the most objective commentators I've ever seen. But he made this comment, and he had read from an economic institute. He said in 1965, the CEOs of the big threes made 20 times more than the hourly employees at those three auto companies. 20 times more in 1965. Today, however, for example, the CEO of General Motors makes 362 times the amount of money that the hourly employee makes the GM plants. How does that statistic fit in to what Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos and, Ho and Hosea say about justice and fairness? You can go to the Christian scripture, what some of us call the New Testament. James, who the brother of Jesus wrote in chapter 5 and verse 4. Look, he says, the wages you failed to pay your workers are crying out against you. The cries of the workers have entered the ears of the Lord Almighty. James starts that passage with that word, look. It is really a word that's translated, you better pay attention to this. The Lord Almighty is listening to the workers who are not being treated fairly. What workers are being paid is a political issue, yes. But is it possible that it's a spiritual issue? Is it possible that it's a social justice issue? I've gotten more criticism than I even, it's healthy for me to think about. Because it really discourages me about my emphasis on social justice. But I cannot read the Hebrew scripture. If I don't talk about social justice, I might not, I might not even call myself a, a follower of Jesus. I might, not, I might well not even read the Bible anymore. If you cut out every verse of Scripture from the Scripture, Hebrew and Christian, that speaks on social justice, you're going to have a very holy, H-O-L-E-Y, Bible. 
There's not going to be much left. Jeremiah in his prophecy was speaking of Josiah, the king before the fall of Jerusalem. And he talks about Josiah. And he says, Josiah defended the cause of the poor and needy. And so all went well for Josiah. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Wow. What if we put that verse at the state capitol or at the national capitol? What if we lived by that as a community in Springfield and the surrounding areas at Jeff City or at Washington, D.C.? So the question is, how are we treating others? And are we open to people who are different than we are, with different views than us? Here's what one guy said about Springfield. He said, there is a hillbilly goober side to Missouri. And if you fit into that, you'll find people amicable. I, a guy I know moved to Springfield. He told town folk that he had a fast boat and was Southern Baptist. He was treated well. So how do we treat people who don't have a bass boat, who aren't Southern Baptist? Well, maybe it's a better question. How do we treat people who are Southern Baptist? <laughs> I still love Southern Baptists as a people. It's still a part of my DNA. I'm just so sad about what the convention's doing. Yeah. So how in the world... How do we treat people who are different than we are? How welcoming is our community? So I want us to think about this. How in the name of all that is good and holy can I want shalom for people that I don't like? How can I apply shalom universally, not just to one group that I connect with? So here is the principle that I read in this passage. Jesus is talking about money and where you invest your money. And in the middle of his talk about money, he puts this zinger in there. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't say where your treasure is, there is your heart. It's not present tense, it's future tense. So he's saying where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Where you send your money, your heart will follow. Where you do a, a, an act of kindness, your affections will follow that. So here's what I understand that to mean in relation to what I'm talking about today. If I have a guy who doesn't vote like I do, who doesn't have the same priorities as I do, maybe doesn't worship like I do, maybe he is a Southern Baptist, I don't know. And I, if you don't know me, please know that's who I was, and I just love that, the people. And I just, yeah. But let's say it's that Southern Baptist, and um, if I do, from what Jesus says, if I do something kind and good to that person that I disagree with, Jesus says that my heart will be warmed toward that person. If I pay that person a compliment or if I uh, buy that person a, a cup of coffee or even take him out to dinner, 
my heart will be soft toward that person. It may have gone into it as hard. I may have gone into it with a wall between us. But if I do something good, invest something into that person that I don't like, my heart is going to follow. Your heart follows your resources, your investment, whether it's money or whether it's your own kindness. Now, psychologists connect this principle to something called cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is the idea that when my attitudes don't match my behavior, I experience some really confusing and discomforting results. And so my feelings toward this particular person are one way. They're negative. They're critical. They're resistant. But if I behave in a kind way toward that person, if I do something good to that person, I've got cognitive dissonance. Why would I do something good, kind, and nice to a person that I really just don't agree with, that I don't like even, that I disagree with in so many different key areas? Cognitive dissonance. So the psychologists tell us what we do when we face and experience cognitive dissonance. We either change our attitude or change our behavior. Well, I'm not going to give anything else. I'm not going to be nice to that person anymore. But I think what Jesus is telling me to do is not to change my behavior of kindness, but to change my attitude of hate, of bitterness, of anger toward that person. What that happen, what does that does in my life is this. I invest in someone through kindness or through goodness, I experience a change of heart toward that person. Let me give you an example from uh, Elliot Aronson. He is a uh, social psychologist, and when I was a, I think I was a junior at Southwest Baptist College, now Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, my sociology professor had his book, The Social Animal, as our textbook. I, I, that, that's the only textbook I kept from, no, I kept my Greek textbook from Southwest Baptist uh, College. And I was looking for that book the other night, could not find it anywhere. Denise helped me look for it, and then Denise said, you know what, Philip, I think you gave that book to Devin. Devin's our younger son who lives in Seattle. So I texted Devin, do you happen to have the social animal? And uh, he said, I sure do, and he sent me a picture of it. And I said, oh, it's like looking at the picture of an old friend. And I said, I think I gave that to you because that book means so much to me. And I said, will you bring it back, please? <laughs> I said, I'll give you a bottle of wine if you give me that book back. I went online to try to find a, to buy another copy of that book, and I couldn't find one for less than $50. I don't know why the value of that thing has increased so much. But Elliot Aronson devised a classroom method called J the Jigsaw Classroom in the late 60s, early 70s. And he devised this method to address the racial prejudices that were experienced in schools in the early years of integration. When the black children were 
integrated into these white schools, they experienced such hate, such violence, such meanness, such res prejudice and racism that the teachers were crying for help. What are we going to do? Because the environment in this school is so harmful to these new students who have been bussed in that they can't learn. There's just such an atmosphere of hate. And so Dr. Aronson came in and developed this jigsaw connection approach. And what he did is go into a classroom and he created out of this classroom different teams. And he put in these different teams, black kids and white kids, and he developed a curriculum to where they were to work on a project or accomplish a task together as a team. In order to accomplish that task, those team members had to work together. So they had to listen to each other. They had to try to understand each other. And what the teachers, this was done first of all in Austin and then carried on throughout the South a little bit. What the teachers discovered is that these kids began to actually understand and connect with each other. And the teacher says, as their empathy for each other increased, the racism decreased. As their empathy for each other increased, the hate decreased. So he took this north to the Bronx, Dr. Aronson did. He applied this to a school district in the South Bronx. And eight years after he applied this approach to that school district, a teacher called Dr. Aronson with this story. This teacher had taken this class filled with mixed-race kids who were just very uh, dysfunctional. There was such oh, danger. There was harm. There was anger. There was so much hurt and so much violence even in the classrooms. But eight months after this method of the jigsaw method, she took these kids to the Whitney Museum, and most of the kids had never gone to a museum before, and she took them to one painting. It was a painting by uh, Achille Gorky. And she got them to really look at that painting. And then she showed them a book on Gorky's life, the author's life, that had a photograph of Gorky and his mother shortly before she died at a very young age when Gorky was just a child. So the teacher asked the students, why do you think Gorky painted this picture of him and his mom when he had this photograph? One kid said, well, the, the painting is bigger than the photograph. Another kid said, well, the painting is color and the photograph is black and white. But then one kid spoke up. His name was Willie Johnson. Willie Johnson was a shy kid, picked on, bullied all the time. His mother had died a few months prior from a drug overdose. And Willie spoke up. And Willie said... Maybe the artist painted the hands of his mother because like cotton, like if you can see it from where you are, big and cottony. And he said maybe he painted his mother like this because her hands were so soft, just like cotton. And you know the photograph, her hands aren't like that. But in his mind, his mom's hands were like that, soft. 
And so he painted this picture to show how soft he remembered his mother's hands to be. And after he gave that commentary on the art, the teacher said the entire group was silent for almost 30 seconds. That's a long time for kids to be quiet. And then she said, the meanest, the toughest, the most racist kid in the whole classroom went over to Willie and put his arm around Willie's shoulders. And then as if on cue, the entire class came around Willie for a big group hug. And the teacher said, this is what happens when our kids learn empathy with each other. Walls really are broken down. So how can I wish peace to the person that I don't agree with or like? Empathize. Listen. Understand. I really think that empathy is a way to break down the walls between us. I want to show you, I've just got a couple of minutes, this clip of a kid who discovered the lack of empathy and then thankfully discovered empathy. Take a look. Um, I just wanted to see if you, if you knew any kids around like 11 or 12 maybe, because I need, I need, I need some friends, like really bad. Although the um, Ray family doesn't so have any kids Shaden's right, age, they posted the video there. to TikTok and it blew up. They also started a GoFundMe raising nearly $40,000. What my life was like before was kids were manipulating me and telling me that they will be my friend. But when they, when they ask me to do something horrible, it's just, I don't feel like they're actually my friend. Before going viral, Shaden didn't have the confidence. He stems very hard. He flaps his arms and he makes noises that a lot of people have made fun of him. So he told me, I just deal with the pain of just holding it in so that I don't get made fun of because of it. And that hurt. <laughs> that broke my heart. My uh, self-confidence has gone through the roof. Yes, you have. To, to stand out and you know help somebody else set that trend, make that the trend to be set, to not be bullied. He's been hospitalized because the bullying was so bad and he felt so isolated. If you see it, just advocate for that person. Just be there for that person. Do not let that person suffer. Shaden wants to leave everyone with this message. <laughs> how, would you, how would you like it if someone were to bully you? How would that make you feel? I apologize for the really bad audio on that. But the kid went up to a neighbor's house just looking for friends. And the neighbor posted it on Facebook. And people responded. And his story is, so many people have been marginalized and bullied. He just wanted someone to understand him, someone to be a friend. At the end, we couldn't hear it at all. 
but he was surrounded by some friends at school who were before maybe not his friends. But they responded, and they began to listen, began to practice empathy. Local, proudly serving local. Have you thought about leaving to go to a town where you might more align with people? If we have, let's think about the words of Jeremiah and the words of Jesus. Let's invest in people. Let's listen to people. Let's be kind to people, even those with whom we disagree, and see if our heart will follow. I think it will.